Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Once again, Kim and I have found a bunch of wine topics that we'd like to discuss with you today. And the first one, Kim, is from Decanter Magazine about contamination of wine by money. And when I first saw the title of this article, what came to me is something we talked about just recently was Wine Spectator Magazine. Mm -hmm. I always feel it's influenced by money, by advertising, but that wasn't really the gist of it. It was a little bit of that. This is a little more of a philosophical article, you know, it doesn't talk about necessarily the taste of wine or what dishes it goes with, but about how over the last 30 or 40 years, wine prices have gone up so much for those top tier bottles that for a lot of people, they are unattainable. Yeah. And, and they said in this, Kim, I don't what your thought is, uh, but they said money is worse than sulfur in wine. <laughs> yeah, no, I, know. That I, was... I agree with that one. Wow. <laughs> money is wine's biggest contaminant is what author Andrew Jeffords says in this uh, article from Decanter, and it that so many of these high prestige bottles are really only used for people as investments, and that rarely do people even drink them, which I think is a shame because wines are beverages. You know, they should be part of your meal. It's a food product. It's an agricultural product, and to lock them away in a bottle and just trade them uh, as if they were widgets, uh, it makes me very sad. Yeah. So they were saying fine wine costs money. People that are buying fine wine have money and then they're buying this wine to make more money right so it was just kept linking back to money and that it almost makes when the price gets so high for a bottle it's almost like the wine inside the bottle isn't real any longer it's it's just a thing yeah it was shocking they mentioned uh, numbers and they were saying the the national average salary is uh, what it was 865 a week for salary and they can't afford at that salary a 200 dollar bottle of wine so that's why in the united states and I hear this all the time on uh, Shock Tank when he talks wine, that the average price paid in the U.S. for a bottle of wine is $8.98. $8.98, which is, to me, it means a lot, right, Mm -hmm. Kim? I mean, talking money and the average bottle is under $10 that everyone's buying, but the people with money are buying all these expensive bottles. Right. Scary. A little scary. A little scary. You're speechless there. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and and it's sort of sad because he mentions in this that in, say, 1980, you who really, regardless of who you were, if you had a little bit of disposable cash and you wanted to try a special bottle of wine, you could buy one of the best vintages of Bordeaux ever for under $100 a bottle. Now, granted, that was in the early 80s, but we're not talking $2,000 a bottle for top wines in the world. They were still relatively easy to get your hands on. Also, there were fewer people drinking wine at that point. It was, it's always, especially at this tier, always been considered a prestige item. But if you had more knowledge than you had dollars, you were able to get your hands on some pretty awesome stuff. And now the pricing for those top tier Bordeaux and Burgundies and some of the better things from these more traditional regions really are out of reach. I know personally that I'm never going to be 
able to have these wines in my cellar. You know, every once in a while, I might be able to have a taste of something at a special event, but chances are these are not things that are going to end up in my life. A lot of those people you, you're talking about, Kim, they probably had a good wine knowledge to know to right. buy Bordeaux exactly. and buy Burgundy. So, I mean, they had a heads up anyway, right. plus they had money. Well, that's so, why I said that the knowledge was there, right, but the, right. the money wasn't necessarily. But now you, it's almost reversed now. It's like you need you need the dollars and the knowledge is a little bit easier to come right. by. I agree with that. And I thought it was very eye-opening how they mentioned a few points about wine critics, how, how the wine critics are actually feeding the money people based on rating of the money wines, the high-end wines. And also that these wine writers or wine critics like us, Kim, we can taste because we're in the industry, like we taste the top 100 wines, but we're not buying them. So it was interesting that the people that are rating them are not really the people putting the money towards the wine. Right. They're, they're feeding the people to buy them mm-hmm. with the money. So it's how it linked it all back. It kept coming back, money, money, money. Yep. And um, it is supply and demand because a lot of these are pretty limited production. So because there are more people out there who want to buy them and want to trade them or invest in them and maybe eventually consume them, that there is more of a demand for these wines than there than there is a supply. So the prices can then go up and they will always be able to find people to to buy them. And this was really related, the article on the consumer, I feel, the end of the money problem in wine. Not not looking at corporations who are putting out the wine, right? It's more mm-hmm. the buyers of the wine. So but I you think- really can't blame the producers. If they can get $1,500 for a bottle of wine and somebody's going to buy it, I can't blame them for putting that no, price I'm, tag I'm, on there. I was kind of thinking more towards the terms of corporate wineries and right. monies they put towards things differently. You know what I mean? Not, yeah. not it's the not, consumer. Yeah, so, it's not that. Yeah, you're issue. right. If there's a demand, and, and recently I heard, I think uh, the Chinese now have such a demand man, it's a status thing in China to bring someone over and have a thousand dollar bottle on your shelf. So all of that stuff is being scooped up. Yep. That's and, absolutely and, part, and of, a, part of the issue. Yeah. And if you're a producer and you can get a thousand dollars in China and 500 in the US, what are you going to do? I mean, <laughs> kind of a no brainer, right? Yeah. So that's another where money is, is impacting the wine world. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out information about myself at my website, vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com. Very informative article in Forbes magazine about champagne labels. And we talk a lot about wine labels, whether it's American wine labels or European wine labels, and how to get the most out of that label for your own understanding of what's in the bottle. And champagne really is a creature unto itself. And I I don't mean all sparkling wines. I mean wines specifically from the region of Champagne in northern France. And there is a lot of info on that label if you if you just look at it and know what you're know what you're reading. I like Kim when we find articles that focus on things that we like to talk about. Labels and champagne or sparkling wine and wine. put them both together, it's great. <laughs> we get excited over these things and people are saying, well, you know, what is there on a, sh- a champagne bottle that we need to know? Uh, what's a ch- It's actually a pretty good trick for what I can would say is value mm-hmm. in how to find a champagne. Agreed. So they were saying since 1979, there's nine mandatory label requirements for champagne and one of them is a, a two-letter code and we'd like to go through what those letter codes are. 
Right. So also what is necessary on a champagne label is that it has to have the word champagne on it. So that is the AOC. So that is what the government has delineated as the production area of champagne. So it must say AOC champagne. It'll tell you who the producer is or who the house is, because in champagne, they talk about houses instead of uh, producers. And what I also consider to be almost the most important thing on a champagne label, which is the style. And this is what a lot of people want to know. Is it a dry champagne? Is it a sweet champagne? Is it somewhere in between? So style is very important. You might see terms like brute or sometimes extra dry, demi-sec, which is the sweeter style. So keep an eye out for those style terms on the bottle. So style is basically sugar levels. Sugar levels, Sugar exactly. levels in that bottle. Right. Alcohol, volume. Those are the, the typical things that you would see. But then there's this other code, you know, sort of code words on the label, like Mark just referenced, that will tell you more about how the grapes or where the grapes are grown and by whom and who is actually making the champagne. So why don't we, uh, why don't we walk everyone through this, Mark? Yeah, so first they're assigned each winemaker assigned a specific number. So on the label, you're going to see a series of numbers followed by two letters. And it's usually on the back, very small, small for me because my eyes are... And those two letters are what we will talk about now. And before getting to the letters, just a few stats on the producers themselves. They say there's about 16,000 growers in Champagne. 319 villages grow 90% of the vineyard. So so it's it's big. It's, it's a big, big production. And so, it's important to remember that unlike a lot of other French wines produced, Champagne is all about brand. And we talk about brands a lot when we talk about California wines, and we don't tend to emphasize them when we talk about European wines. So like there's not a whole lot of producers in France that we consider to be like big brands. You know, there are a couple in Beaujolais and in Burgundy like Jadot or Dubuff that we kind of think of more as branded wines. But Champagne is the place where where you really have more of an idea of this is a brand, this is a style. You know, these are names that people are familiar with, like Moet or Veuve Clicquot or Bollinger or Tattinger. You know, all these, produ- we tend to think of them as producers, but it's more truthful to think about them as brands. I'm glad you mentioned brands, Kim, because these these letter codes we're going to talk about actually will help you decipher how big a brand Right, you'll be able to figure is. out if this is a brand or if it's more like a, a small production hands-on kind of kind of a wine. So that's pretty cool. So once again, you look at the champagne label, you turn it around. Usually you're going to see a series of numbers and then two letters. And the first one we want to talk about is NM, which is probably the most well-known term you'll see. Right. So NM stands for Negociant Manipulant. And it, again, like Mark just said, is the most common, the most common bottlings out there are going to have this designation. And it may or may not mean that it's owned by a vineyard that's right. producing the grapes that are in this bottle. What else, Kim, would you say is a key when you see this? I tend to think of these as larger production. A lot of these producers have been around for a very, very long time, like think hundreds of years. Um, these champagne houses, a lot of these champagne houses were established in the 1600s. So they really have been a lot around for a really long time. And some of them are quite big. So these are champagne houses that are established. They have winemaking staff and they either own their own vineyards or they tend to purchase grapes from growers that they have long-standing relationships 
with. So it's more the, it's not that they are lower quality because they're really not, but it's more the way that their company is structured. So it's a, like you said, Kim, it's a, it's a bigger brand that buying mostly from growers and then they're making a house style of champagne every year right. with grapes they're buying from probably different people all the time or sources they use all the time that are growing differently every year. Right. But they usually will blend and they will try to make a consistent style year in and year out so that whether you had it this year or whether you had it five years ago, if you find a style that you like from a particular brand of champagne, they will try to make it the same so that it tastes the same to you whether you have it now or in five years. So then next you turn around, you see a series of numbers and you see the letters RM. So instead of negociant manipulant, you have recoltant manipulant. And we in the industry refer to these as grower champagnes. And this just means that the same person or group of people who grew the grapes are also making the wine as well. And this has been trending probably for the last three years, people learning these codes and saying, wow, I can get a bottle of champagne that the guy is actually growing this fruit and making this product. Uh, so I think they they mentioned they call it farmer fizz mm-hmm. uh, in France. So really good value. Probably it's sometimes less price point than the big brands. Really? I find them to be the opposite. Yeah, you see more expensive. I find them to be more expensive. I, I, well, I guess we're still talking $40, $50, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> You're not going to find any of these under like 30 bucks a bottle. So some of the better ones that I've had of these grower champagnes have been in more like the $75, $80 price point. But it's nice if you see these because you know that it's a little bit more small production, more hands-on, and they aren't necessarily going to be the same year in and year out. So if you like that about wine and discovering new labels and new bottles and and new flavors, uh, these could be a great great way to go. So the NM and the RM are probably the two the top two, but there are five more, Kim, and the, the next is CM. Which means that it's a cooperative production where a lot of growers are getting together and growing the grapes and then making the wine as well or selling off. I was a little confused, honestly, about the description of this one. I would assume that they could be a grower themselves, but then also be part of a co-op. So maybe that's maybe that's the difference. And they're saying there's about 100 co-ops. So I'm hmm. assuming of those 100, there's people that are doing their own R versions of sparkling as well of champagne. Or it could be that they're all pooling their resources and then producing one label under the label of the co-op, which makes it different from the next category, which is RC, Récoltante Coopérateur, which is also a co-op, but then each individual member of the co-op gets their own label. So I think that's the difference between the two co-op labels, is that one, everybody gets their own label, and then the other one, they're labeling them all as one product. And it might be some sort of fallback system too is if it's a bad vintage less production maybe these are just technicalities and and labeling okay sure so maybe maybe there's a co-op system and in one year they might all just bottle under the same label but in better years they all get their own yeah so they can still produce and Mm -hmm. and make money the next one kim was nd this is another one of those negociant ones but instead of it being the negociant is producing the champagne this is more of a distribution and relabeling system so the 
negociant will purchase finished wine, not grapes, but they will they will purchase the actual uh, finished champagne and then put their very own label on it. So this, you're talking about the other ones being confusing. I was confused between this term and the next one where it says MA. So ND and MA because MA is third party producing their own sparkling champagne. Right. So I think the difference is that for the negociant, you have one, say, company putting their label on it. But then if they were selling that to a restaurant or to, say, Trader Joe's, and then Trader Joe's puts its own label on it, then that's when it falls into the MA category. So it's a private label specifically for that next step of the distribution chain, either a restaurant or a store. But you can't associate that with a co-op or a single grower. Correct? No, I guess you can't. According to the label. Right. Law, but yep. It would have to be labeled so it's kinda, as something different. Kind of confusing, but it's French, so we assume, <laughs> assume that's going to happen. And then the last term that you could see following the, the numbers on a label would be SR. Which is another co-op system. This was the one that I was confused about. I have no idea what they're talking about here. The frankly. growers, they're saying the growers make it and they market it themselves, which I guess is the other co-op or the other growers, they have other people market for them. So this was being they do everything themselves. So I would assume this is very rare in the United States to find this because I would think so. They have no one to really support and market right. for them. Because so. they would have to find an importer. They would have to find just different distributors for each of the states. That adds extra levels of complexity for the growers. There were a few things came also in the article. I just want to touch base with you on, and one of them was uh, maybe a lot of listeners don't know this, but in Champagne, all the grapes must be hand harvested, and that labor requires one hundred thousand pickers each season. Imagine that. Yep. And that's, that's a lot I think of one of the reasons why champagne can be so expensive is because there is a lot of labor that goes into champagne. So not only do you need to have all these people picking your grapes and paying attention to when they're picking the grapes and all those things, but there is a lot of manipulation that goes on of the wine in the cellar because of just the champagne process. It's a multi-step process that is way more complex than making a still wine. So there is a lot of labor. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of extra effort that goes into sparkling wine. And that's one of the reasons why the price is usually a little bit higher. Also, the article noted, Kim, and all the time we talk about champagne, we always learn about the big three grapes that go in. And they were saying there's actually seven allowed varietals that can go into champagne. And I was kind of educationally, that was like, wow, I never, I knew of four, but I didn't know there were seven that they could use. And I'm assuming this is like another backup. If there's a bad vintage, they might mm-hmm. have something that grows on the side they might use for other things. Or that was traditionally used in champagne in the past and has been slowly but surely there's less and less of these grapes in those vineyards and so they're kind of moving beyond those grapes and are now really only growing the the chardonnay the pinot noir and the pinot meunier Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow our show, please find us on iTunes or SoundCloud at The Wonderful World of Wine.
Next, Kim, we found an interesting article in drinkbusiness.com about how vineyards in France are investing in bats to protect their grapes. I think this is a great example of uh, something we call integrated pest management, which is a category of sustainable and environmentally friendly pest control, where you have other things, other creatures uh, in, your, in your vineyard that take care of the other little creatures in your vineyard that you don't necessarily want want there. So there are some that will use ladybugs to eat smaller bugs uh, on the on the grapevines. There are a lot of bird programs. So whether they're hawks or some other birds that are used to keep uh, small pests under control. And now we're seeing bats. And this was experiment done in France in the Dordogne region, which is near Bordeaux. And there were a number of vineyards that tried to make their habitat be very friendly to this, this certain variety of bats, which would then eat these moths that were uh, pests to their, their vineyards. So this is more of a biodynamic type of thing where the vineyard is its own ecosystem and they bring things in to take care of other things. They feel it's natural instead of hitting things with pesticides to control the moths. It's it's healthier for the vine. It's better for you as a consumer that these things are not getting in your wine. And the only question when I was reading it, they said the bats were introduced. So how do they... How, how are they doing this? Are they like going to the pet store and buying bats? Or because then they mentioned yeah. in the they tried it in twenty three plots of land and they found nineteen out of twenty two species of bats were there. So I'm assuming somehow they enticed them to come to the mm-hmm. vineyard and they didn't bring them in. But I don't know how. I mean, or they just in- introduced more of a population of a, va- a bat that was naturally going to be in that area anyway. And they were there was a ready food source because they concentrated on bats that would eat Eat the particular moths that were there and that were being pests in the vineyard. And then they analyzed which bats were eating which moths and I thought that was that was quite fascinating as well. So you mentioned earlier Kim about we've read in the past stories about vineyards that bring in hawks or birds and I've seen where they build these special little bird houses mm-hmm. and they put things in and that attracts that species of bird and, and hawk so I mean I think this is really great I, in, in one instance I've seen in California where they actually have people that they hire these people that have hawks to come in for the day uh-huh. and scare away whatever's in the, in the vineyards and then and they won't come back because they feel that hawk is coming back. So. Yeah, and this would be is very useful for French wine growers in particular because there is so much pesticide use in grape growing. And we've seen the numbers for France where it's something like agriculturally, I think 10% of production of fruits and vegetables go is is wine production, but something like 50 or 60% of the, the pesticide usage is on, wine, is on grape vines that are for wine. So there's a lot of pesticide use uh, in France for grapes. And I see this as, you know, a movement into something a little bit more sustainable and environmentally friendly. So nice job with the bats. Yeah, I'm curious because they're bats and most of the time people are harvesting at night i'm wondering if there's any issues hmm. i can see the day you know they're not out there's no problem but well, bats are, they are more harvesting? like a dusk dawn kind of thing so i don't know i don't know i, I I'm I'm, just, I love bats so i'd be happy uh, for the bats i don't know around. if i want to be picking <laughs> the grapes and and they you know hitting my head and stuff but it is an interesting thing and i, I think i give france a lot of credit because they're always looking but but We've seen in the past where California is always looking at uh, managing this way as well. So mm-hmm. it's not something totally new in the wine world. It's just something they focus on because it's bats instead of birds or, right. or hawks.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find out more information about me at my website, vinitaswineworks.com, and more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. So you have an old bottle of wine that's been sitting around either in your cellar or in a closet. How do you know if that wine is still good? This was a great article from the Washington Post uh, that we ran across and a question that I get fairly frequently from people. Yeah, and they said, how do you tell if the dusty bottle... The dust is not just that bottle. That in, dusty my, in my home, they're dusty and my wife gets very upset. And it doesn't mean because they're old, it's just because I don't take care of it, right? So a very common question, when to drink and, and what to put away, Kim. And I think a lot of times we always recommend two two major things, an acidic wine and a tannic wine. And you always kind of relate a price point to what you can sit down and know when is good to drink. Right. So this is one of those areas where a little bit of knowledge will take you far. And in this article, they pointed out three things that you should should know to try to figure out if the wine that you have was age worthy because they're going on the assumption that you have this bottle and that you're not going out and buying something to put down. So look at the producer, look at the region and look at the vintage. Now vintage takes a little bit of research because you may have a 20 year old bottle that you're looking at and the year after it might have been age worthy whereas the one that you have in your hand isn't. So that's when going online and doing a little bit of research as far as quality of the vintage can go pretty far. But then region and producer, I actually think that region is more important here and then do some individual research on producer. So for age-worthy wines, you know, you really want to look at those well-regarded regions that have a track record of producing wine that does age particularly well. So we're talking about Bordeaux, we're talking about Napa, California, some better Chiantis do too. But usually overall, it's it's big reds that will, that will age better than anything else. So explain again to me, Kim, the producer you're saying don't how to no, go by how to go by not- no it's just i think it's harder for people to tell because there are so many producers out there and even in a poor vintage a really good producer can produce a great wine whereas sometimes if it's a lesser producer and you have a good vintage they might not necessarily be making a wine that is meant for aging especially if it's a second label or you know maybe it's more of a blend and isn't really meant for um for aging if it's like a big fruit forward kind of kind of red yeah i like when we're on the same page because I was told a long time ago that a good producer can make a good wine no matter what the vintage gives Mm -hmm. them. So that's something to think about. But when you're looking at a producer, it can be tricky because take, for instance, Robert Mondavi. They make some high-end wine, some high-end Napa cabs, but they also make $10 $10 Woodbridge is Robert Mondavi. So if you think Robert Mondavi $100 cab is going to taste the same as the Woodbridge cab, that could be a total misconception, correct? Yeah, that's so a great point. The other thing about vintage is and we've talked about all the issues with the climate and they say it's a bad vintage and then they'll come out and say, okay, you know, Champagne had a horrible vintage this year. The weather was bad. They had frost and then the vintage charts come out and they say it's a great rated vintage. So they had little fruit, but they still made good wine. So right. that can be tricky as well. So so those vintage charts usually don't refer to how easy of a vintage it was or how hard of a vintage it was, but the final quality of the wine coming out of that year. So that is important, I think, for people to understand because like you just said, it could have been a really tough weather year, but the small amount of wine that they maybe got from that year turned out to be excellent quality. And they gave two other little clues I thought was good information is you pick up a dusty bottle, 
bottle. You don't know if it's still good. And then you look and it might be leaking. Yeah, this or was a great air space. And I think this is really useful information to people because you don't need to know about vintage. You don't need to know about producer. But if you pick up that bottle and it's leaking or it's got a low what we call fill, meaning it doesn't look like it's as full as it should be. That's important stuff to know, because if you've got a leaky bottle, chances are some air has gotten in there and maybe it hasn't evolved the way that it should have. Yeah. And then they end the article, Kim, and I thought it was a great a little point they mentioned. So you find these wines. What's the best way to know if it's you can drink it? Get a group of friends, open it up. Just drink it. Right. So, <laughs> you know, either it's going to be a great experience for your friends or you're going to serve them a lot of bad wine. Right. So. Yeah. And I always tell people it's better to drink it too soon than to wait too long and have it be over the hill and not enjoyable. It's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> and you have been holding on to a special bottle and then you open it and it falls apart. It doesn't taste good. It's it's maybe it's, you know, oxidized or it's starting to turn to vinegar. It's really sad. And you mentioned, <laughs> Kim, vintage charts. They also, some have designed where they'll tell you if it's a 2010 Napa Cabernet, it'll tell you when it's at peak, when it's past peak, if you can still hold it. So there's a guide. And But like you were saying, Kim, you can't really go by that either because I've seen it where it says it's past peak and it was tasting beautiful. Yep. So yep. I've had that happen too. So, you know, some sometimes it just comes down to it being that individual bottle, but chances are if it's got those, you know, leaky notes on there that, that you probably want to open that sooner rather than later and just see what's going on with that bottle. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can visit us at our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine, and leave us any questions or comments. And please also find us on iTunes under The Wonderful World of Wine. Mm -hmm.